Hello, everyone, and welcome to Friend Diagram. This is the podcast where two friends catch up and find common ground between their favorite media. I'm Remy. I'm Kat. And today we will be discussing Asteroid City, originally discussed on episode 51. Today we are joined by Jonathan Lack. He is a PhD candidate in the cinematic arts, a podcast host, and our resident Wes Anderson expert. As a programming note, on today's episode, we will be discussing the film in depth and it will have many spoilers. We recommend that you see Asteroid City prior to listening to this episode. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. We're so excited to have yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> so exciting to have you here. We've been like talking about you for a number of weeks now as Kat has been attending your Film Scene 101 course on Wes Anderson. So I was so jealous when she told me <laughs> she was going to get to attend that because I'm no longer um, in the area, but I absolutely love Film Scene and I love all of their program. And so when she told me that was happening, I was like, oh, I'm so sad I'm missing out on that. So each <laughs> week I've been checking in and being like, what do you guys talk about this week? Tell me all about it. And she's been raving about it and said, you've been doing such a fantastic job hosting. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's deeply flattering. Yeah, I'm a, <laughs> I'm, and I'm a big fan of what Film Scene does. So honestly, for me, it was just a a privilege to be able to do that and to, you know, work with them on that. It was, uh, and, and the audiences that show up for that sort of thing are so good. Um, when you have audiences like that, and I think when you have a director like Wes Anderson, it, uh, to a certain extent teaches itself just because the, the films give you so much. And then I think the people are there and they want to engage with it. And that is, mm -hmm. uh, a dream come true. Cause I'm, I'm a little more used to, you know, teaching college freshmen who don't always want to be there. So this is. Sure. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I know. We'd love to hear a little bit more about you and your background, your uh, field of study, uh, and what you're working on right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been. So I'm currently a, a fifth going into my sixth year uh, in the PhD here at Cinematic Arts at the <laughs> University of Iowa. Uh, that's a that's a normal amount of time for those wondering. It's just excruciating for all of us who go through it. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I got my BA and my MA at the University of Colorado in Boulder. I was born Ooh. here in Iowa, grew up in Colorado, got those degrees in Boulder. Um, I started writing about film when I was 10 years old. There was a, I told this story at the first Wes Anderson class and I realized while telling it, my background sounds like a Wes Anderson character because <laughs> as a kid, I was the kid movie, I was, they called me the movie kid, uh, at this, this section of the Denver Post, which is our big paper in Colorado called the Colorado mm -hmm. Kids. And it came out every Wednesday, I want to say. And I started, you could apply to write for the Colorado Kids when you were 10. And I was so excited. I got in and they had me going to movie screenings, like the, the press screenings when I was 10. No and I way. Was, wow. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> it was, I didn't, I, I thought it was cool at the time. And I think it was only as an adult, I realized just how cool it was. Yeah. But yeah, I wrote reviews um, for them when I kind of aged out of that, because it was obviously only for kids. I think it was 14 was the cutoff. I was invited to write for a new uh, section that they had at the post that was community journalism called Your Hub. I had a blog for them for several years writing movie reviews. Then I kind of went off on my own. And I've done various things over the years. In 2012, I started a podcast with my friend Sean. Um, same idea as I think what, what you guys have of, I like the, um, friend diagram as well. Yeah, it's a yes. good name. 
<laughs> Our <laughs> podcast you. has a very boring name. It's called the Weekly Stuff Podcast because we couldn't think of something better. And we talk about <laughs> lots of different stuff. Um, but we've been doing that for 10 years, almost 500 episodes. Wow. Uh, so that's all the kind of periphery. And then, yeah, in, in my academic work, I write uh, about Japanese film, film history, a lot of animation. Uh, I write about uh, anime and my dissertation that I'm working on right now is about anime in the 21st century and how digital technology has impacted all of that. Um, and so I don't study like academically something sort of Wes Anderson adjacent, other than I will argue his work is so animated that my <laughs> animation background actually does. I brought that a little bit in when we talked about Moonrise Kingdom, for instance, mm -hmm. which was his first movie after Fantastic Mr. Fox, which was stop motion animated. And he mm -hmm. brings a lot of that animated style in. Uh, but yeah, I, I, my first exposure to Wes was 2007, the, the Darjeeling Limited. I went back and found my original review of that I wrote back in the day. That's so cool. Um, yeah, I think I read what a little a bit of capsule. that out. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I cringe going back that far. Uh, but it was, it was, uh, that movie was revelatory for me because that was like a real discovery. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed hearing all of your musings on Wes Anderson's directing and his thematic ties that he weaves through all of his films, right? And um, I just felt like it helped me appreciate his work so much more because there was something about Wes Anderson that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And I knew that I liked the visuals and I knew that I liked his films, the ones that I'd seen. And I just felt like the lead up to Asteroid City made me uh, just like so much more excited for it. And it helped me to appreciate the film so much more, especially after watching Grand Budapest, where we talked about all of the like kind of uh, Russian nesting doll aspects of mm -hmm. that film. And it helped me like be oriented for Asteroid City, which was complex, but definitely I felt primed, properly primed for it. Yeah. So I, I guess... What did the process look like for setting up this film series with Film Scene? And why did you choose the four films that you did? Yeah, so they reached out to the film department, to Cinematic Arts at the university. Uh, I think they've done this before for some other Film Scene 101 things where they knew they wanted to do something with Wes Anderson. They didn't have someone, I guess, uh, to teach it. And so they were asking around the film department. I put my name forward because I was like, oh, that sounds fun. And I love mm -hmm. Wes and I haven't gotten to do something like this. So this sounds great. Uh, and, and then I had a talk with Ben Delgado, who is the programming director there at Film Scene. The films were actually pre-chosen. It was, I asked Ben about this and it was basically, these were the four that they had never shown at Film Scene before, really? uh, is what he told me. Yeah, that, that uh, some of the others, like Fantastic Mr. Fox has been shown at their kids' stuff, you know, that they do. Right. Um, I think some of the, I was surprised they hadn't shown Grand Budapest, but I guess, Same. yeah, I guess if you go back far enough, that would be before they had Chauncey or I think, did they have the Ped Mall in 2014? I don't know. Um, I wasn't I here. I can't believe then. it's been that long now. Yeah. It feels like Grand Budapest just came out to me. I, it's nine years old and it makes me feel really wow. old. 
Yeah. Um, no, but these were the ones, I guess he said, yeah, that they had not shown, uh, or at least not shown recently. And so he, he wanted to do these and I was fine with it. Um, he said they could maybe rework it if I felt like there was an issue with them, but I thought it was, it was, yeah, I think if I were doing it from the ground up, I might have reoriented it slightly differently. But what I liked about the, the layout was it was a good span of time. It was his two of his mm-hmm. early movies and two of his later movies. Um, I think they pair pretty well. I, I kind of view Wes as having sort of two big phases so far, maybe splitting into three now. I'm not sure, but, uh, I do see Fantastic Mr. Fox, his first animated movie being this dividing line where everything after that point looks and feels a little different. It sounds different. He's got Alexander Desplat from that point forward doing music. Um, and so I think we had two before that movie and two after that movie, and that felt good. And of course, you know, Grand Budapest is a crowd pleaser. Royal Tenenbaums is. And then I think Bottle Rocket and Moonrise Kingdom are a little thornier. Uh, not necessarily less well known. I think Moonrise Kingdom did well when it came out, but, but just it was, it was a good mix, I think. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And from that point on, it was, just, I went to the library and I checked out several big books, um, which is always the first step. And then the, my main resources were old things I'd written about Wes and collected. And then uh, the books that Matt Zoller cites, the critic has done, uh, who is, for those who don't know, he runs RogerEbert.com now. He's written for places like Vulture for many years, written a ton of books, uh, great author and critic. And he's known Wes, I guess, since... Wes Anderson made Bottle Rocket back in the 90s wow. and and they were just both I guess in Dallas and knew each other. And so they'd had this long relationship and he has these series of these big beautiful coffee table books called the Wes Anderson collection that are just basically very long interviews but with a bunch of other pictures and ephemera and that kind of stuff. And that was a nice basic resource and then kind of branching off from that when I found something interesting. Uh, and feeling like, you know, what does each movie need? Bottle Rocket was a very, like, history-oriented lecture of sort of how did Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson come to Hollywood? How did they make the short film? How did they make the feature film? Wound up going off on a whole tangent about Polly Platt, the amazing producer whose reputation and and kind of um, history has been sort of revitalized by the recent Karina Longworth podcast. You must remember this mm. because she is vital in the history of Wes Anderson. But then other films, I think, like Moonrise Kingdom were less about the behind the scenes details than sort of thematically. What is this movie doing? Why is it using Benjamin Britten? You know, just kind of letting the film guide it because, of course, it's, you know, I think what we did, we did about 45 minutes to an hour on each film split between lecture and discussion. So trying not to overload it, uh, but have enough to kind of cue everyone up for good questions and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Remy, you discussed Asteroid City last week. Do you want to just kind of give a brief overview of kind of what you chatted about last week? Sure. So like Kat said, I got to solo on Asteroid City as my pick a couple of weeks ago. So I'll clear out for you guys, Kat and Jonathan, too, discussed your experience seeing the film and some of your first impressions. The details of mine are back in episode 51, but largely I brought Asteroid City to Friend Diagram because I was really pleased with my experience. I got to see it when it was in limited release here in New York City and had a wonderful time greatly enjoyed it. I saw it on Father's Day. <laughs> it was really fun. There's lots of families in the theater. And I found it wonderfully emotionally impactful. 
Um, I loved the way the, the emotional valence of these people, these characters in the film broke through, even despite the, the heavy layers of artifice and, um, clear, clear indications of storytelling and the way stories are structured, whether it's plays or TV programs or films or all at once, uh, with this multi-layered storytelling framework. So I had a wonderful experience watching this film where the plot centers on a group of junior stargazers that are assembling in a small desert town called Asteroid City out in the American West, along with all of their families. And this large cast of characters has an encounter with an extraterrestrial life form, and that kicks off a series of events where they are sequestered in Asteroid City and deal with the fallout of this extraterrestrial encounter. Um, that's the basic <laughs> premise of the story within the story. So you guys know that I really enjoyed it. Um, Kat, what was your experience seeing Asteroid City? Yeah, I loved it on my first watch. So I've seen it twice now. I just went another time this week and I loved it both times, but it, I felt like it hit harder on my second watch. Like I laughed harder. I cried harder. I felt like <laughs> it just hit me just emotionally so much more where I wasn't like as focused on the structure since I'd watched it one time before. And I think that this is tied at the top for my favorite Wes Anderson film right now after my second watch. I think that the themes in it uh, just like were very emotionally resonant with me and it was perfectly balanced with all of the comedic moments in there. So I wasn't feeling like too much tension, too much like sadness at any given point. And yeah, I can't wait to see it again. It's one of those films that I feel like I could just rewatch over and over and over again. So mm-hmm. yeah. Jonathan, what was your viewing experience like? Did you see it at film scene? I did. I saw it. Um, I, I wound up for all of the screenings uh, that I was teaching at sitting in basically the same seat. So I bought the same seat and everything. And I was like, we'll just make it a, yeah. make a series out of it. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was a, you know, sold out opening night. It's so cool. I, it's been funny for me over the last like 20 some years I've been following Wes Anderson, just like, I guess a, a little less than 20, but, but. I, I was I was aware of him before I ever saw any of his stuff, and I remember when I think people were more like, "Who's this weirdo making these very quirky <laughs> movies?" And I remember my parents seeing Royal Tenenbaums when it came out. I was too young to see it, and they just did. They were like, "I don't get what that was about." And now uh, my mom and her husband, uh, they sometimes get to Wes Anderson movies before I do because they're so <laughs> bold on them. Uh, wow. And sometimes they come to Denver before they get to Iowa. But uh, so I think it's been fun to see like now it's like, okay, anytime you go see a Wes Anderson movie opening night, you're going to have this big sold out theater and people are going to love it. And that was very much the experience with this one. It's a fun movie to see with a crowd. I'm a jealous cat that you've seen it twice because I was hoping <laughs> to work in a second screening and I've been working all week on this Indiana Jones series on my site. And uh, I wish I could have seen this again rather than the new indie movie because it's bad. But Asteroid oh, City no. was great. <laughs> <laughs> Asteroid City is delightful. And I do think I totally understand how it would get richer on a second viewing because it's mm-hmm. what it's doing is pretty dense. And then I also think my main reaction is this one snuck up on me. 
I enjoyed it all the way through and I was laughing and I thought it was very clever and I thought it was doing a lot of really smart things with the framing device and and all of this stuff and the performances are beautiful. But I was mostly like, okay, this is maybe a little lower key West. I'm very much enjoying this. Maybe not one of my favorites. And then you get to the moment and we're allowed to spoil, right? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. You get to the moment late in the movie when Jason Schwartzman walks out of the play within a movie and goes and talks to the writer and then to the actress played by Margot Robbie, who's playing the woman who plays his ex-wife. Everyone's playing multiple parts in this movie. And you get this encounter about like, it's basically this like discussion with God, almost talking to the writer and then talking to this other actress about like art isn't providing the answers. And the whole movie clicked for me. And I was like, and it, it, it really like hit, hit me all like a ton of bricks there at the end. And mm-hmm. I think that was the interesting thing about this movie is it's just, um, it lays its groundwork and I, and I think it has a point where it pulls the strings together and it does it really beautifully. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I had a really similar experience, uh, at my first viewing where I wasn't sure how I was feeling about it until that third act. Uh, and especially the balcony scene is really yeah. when I was like, wow, this is actually really hitting home. And after that, I was totally um, like swept away. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually just was able to see it for a second time last night. And I was really pleasantly surprised with how packed the theater was on like a Thursday evening, a couple weeks after release here. So I was very pleased to see how strong the attendance has been at my theater and there was laughs throughout everyone was having a great time I mean it was really that you could tell it was a movie people crowd because it was um I usually go to an AMC for these new releases and everyone was screaming and clapping for Nicole Kidman so I was like this is gonna be a great a great viewing Experience. I only got to see that Nicole Ed Kidman ad for the first time when I was in Colorado again a couple months ago, and I went with a friend uh-huh. to a movie, and I was like, "Oh, that's that's the thing everyone's that's been talking it. about because there's no <laughs> AMC's in Iowa." So I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's the thing." Anyway, sorry, <laughs> off track, but I was no, so happy. It's fine, <laughs> absolutely. But yes, so I saw it again just last night, and uh, like Cat was kind of alluding to, once you have a firmer idea of how everything is going to be playing out and structured, you can really pay attention to some more like personal details that are added in. And I was very excited to see the balcony scene again, because I loved it so much the first time around. And what really struck me the second time around was actually how good the discussion is between Jason Schwartzman and Adrian Brody, which is a big speech that happens right before the balcony scene that you were just referring to, Jonathan, where Jason Schwartzman, playing the actor, playing his character, leaves the play and is kind of having a a crisis about his performance. And he asks Adrian Brody, am I doing it right? Am I doing this right? Am I playing my character right? And that crisis of whether you are living your life right, whether you are becoming yourself in the right way, there were so many questions, universal questions embedded in that discussion between him and Adrian Brody's character that 
hit really hard on the second watch and completely primed me for all of the huge questions that came up immediately after in the balcony scene. And so upon second viewing, I realized it was a really strong one-two punch of deep emotional conversations that Jason Schwartzman's character is having one right after the other. And it was stellar. It, it really is. It's this, it, it is amazing to see the, just how like coherent the movie's sense of itself is when it snaps into place like that, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it's doing even for Wes in this later period, a lot of interesting, bold things with the structure. And I think the way, I, it, I I think this is true of all of his movies and how they play with structure, but it isn't just a gimmick. It isn't just for, it isn't window dressing. And that play between them is, is so rich. And I also think it's interesting. The marketing didn't reveal any of that. The, no, the, I found the trailers, that fascinating too. Yeah. I, I'm almost wondering if, it seems like audiences have liked it. It feels like the kind of thing that might throw some people off, but I think the movie is so open about it. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think Brian Cranston's first, he opens the movie with his little spiel about this is everything you're about to see is a fiction. It's a play. The movie keeps reminding you of that, but it's also asking you to invest in it. And of course, it, this is true of all movies. They're fiction, but th- this film is very open about it and then cracks it open even further to be about the emotions of the characters in the play and the characters doing the playing. Mm-hmm. And I think that link is so fascinating. Yeah. So I was able to highlight some of the characters I loved in my previous discussion. I was wondering which characters really stood out to you, Jonathan, as perhaps the most emotionally salient or just really remarkable characters in the film. Yeah. In the in the film scene series we did, I, I kind of made it a regular feature to just talk about at least a couple of actors that Wes used every time. Because he's got such an interesting way with actors, and he's got this growing stable of people who come in and then kind of never leave. That <laughs> they're always there, and I always love when there's a new one because I think he sees things in actors that you can see in their other work, but doesn't always get exploited. And mm-hmm. I thought the one for me here, in terms of someone, and and I, she has been in a West movie before, Isle of Dogs, but just as a voice. But Scarlett Johansson, I think this is like. Not that it's surprising that she's a great actress. She's in so many cool, great things. But I thought there was like a specific kind of like weariness that we had in her that I'm not sure I've seen in a part by her before where it's just this like she because I mean, she's literally a movie star in the movie. So she's playing a kind of version of herself in that sense. And then there is this kind of like weary, gritty humanity under it where she's actually like intensely down to earth when she's talking to Jason Schwartzman and just wanting a little bit of connection. It's, it's often the sadness Wes Anderson finds in people that is interesting. Like Bill Murray, Mm -hmm. that was the revelation in Rushmore was like, Oh wow. He's funny, but he's also really sad. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that flew with her here. And then Jason Schwartzman, I, I saw this tweet before I had seen asteroid city when it was out like in New York and someone tweeted that, um, for anyone who's been invested in Jason Schwartzman and seen him grow up on screen, the last half hour of this movie is lethal. Max Fisher grew up referring to his character in Rushmore, which is one of my favorite movies. I think Max Fisher is like the closest I can point to of a character who feels like me as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, interpret that as you will. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, and I do think there is something to that of the way Max Fisher is this person who relentlessly creates 
even when it destroys his life and the lives of those around him. And that's his arc in, in Rushmore. And coming back to that idea of why am I doing the creating? What's the point of it? Uh, he's such a great actor and he's, he's always at his best in Wes Anderson movies. Mm-hmm. And this is no exception. Yes, I absolutely loved his performance. And I agree. I think Scarlett Johansson fit right in. She like tonally locked right into place. Um, she had an excellent performance. Kat, did any characters stand out to you in either of your viewings? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a big Tom Hanks stan. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just talked about his performance in Sleepless in Seattle recently, and I grew up watching all of his movies with my mom. Um, Castaway was like a huge one for us. And this is his, if I'm not wrong, um, this is his first Wes Anderson film that he's been in. And he, especially on my second watch, all of his like body language things that he's doing as this character, I forget his character's name off the top of my head, but it was so moving, especially in like the final burial scene with the mom where he stands so close to Jason Schwartzman's character and they you can see them kind of forming this bond over this shared trauma. And it just moved me to tears. I had tears streaming down my face and I just thought it was really beautiful. And I thought he did such a good job being both subtle and emotional. And I loved his interactions with the little girls, like just my favorite character in the film for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I found him very enjoyable to watch. He's great. I thought, I thought it was very nice because Tom Hanks has been in a weird mode the last couple of years where every movie is some broad Eastern European stereotype, <laughs> yeah. like, like uh, Elvis and A Man Called Otto. It's just like every the, the Pinocchio movie. Mm-hmm. He's been a little off in La La Land. And I was like, okay, he's still got it. He's mm-hmm, a great yeah. actor. There's weight to it. There's sadness. There's the monologue mm-hmm. he has about, you know, in my loneliness, I've, you know, learned to prioritize the people I love. And I don't know if that includes you, but it included my little girl and her daughters. Um, and that that line I just remember because it's in the trailers, which I've mm-hmm. seen a million times, but it's in the movie too. And it, I, I think that's in the moment you're talking about. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I think that uh, the funeral speech that he does at the end is a an excellent standout moment. And it was one of several that upon reflection in my second viewing, I realized that all of my favorite moments are sort of monologues where people are given a specific speech and they can walk you through a series of themes and ideas and build that emotional tension and payoff. So I didn't realize it the first time around, but in the second time around, I really locked into it because uh, easily my five like favorite parts are first- Jeffrey Wright has that speech as the general where he does a five chapter Amazing. speech where he, <laughs> you know, vocalizes chapter one. That was life. And so <laughs> that is amazing. I don't know how to describe why I love it so much, but it is just the essence of Americana storytelling and the camera movements and how he's framed mm-hmm. as he discusses each chapter. It's so pitch perfect. I loved it. And his performance is wonderful. He nailed it. 
Yeah, I'm sorry. Jeffrey Wright, you know, he came in with Wes on French Dispatch, and he's also the highlight of that movie for me. And it's just, man, you're just like, oh, he's born for this. He like he yeah. can do that Wes Anderson dialogue and blocking just so beautifully. I it's it's similar to me when Ed Edward Norton first started doing movies with Wes, and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, they're born for each other. <laughs> uh Jeffrey Wright, I hope he's in every single one going forward. You're so mm-hmm. right. Me too. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I loved it. It's so perfect. And I also realized I really love the scene on the train where the understudy goes to the actress playing Midge Campbell on the train and reads the series of letters culminating in that final letter. That is beautiful. And you like the camera pushes into the, that actor as he's reading the letter and it's very emotionally stirring. And the way Scarlett Johansson plays it is so straight, but there's such nuance to her reaction. I loved that scene and I loved how that it cleared out for reading that letter. It was fascinating. Um, and then obviously I loved the speech that Adrian Brody gives to Jason Schwartzman's character when he asks if he's doing it right, mm-hmm. which leads into the balcony speech. And then we wrap it up with Tom Hanks's prayer speech at the funeral. So I realized that whenever these people each get uh, a monologue on their own, they absolutely make the most of it, both in terms of writing and performance. And so those were all of my highlights. Oh, can I highlight one more thing now that we're talking about monologues? My favorite monologue it, uh, aside from Tom Hanks's funeral speech, but I thought one of the ones that kind of surprised me the most was when Montana is pontificating about right. the reasons for the alien coming and how he's not an American and he's not a creature of God's green earth, but he's a creature of somewhere. And he just kind of has this, like, everything's going to be okay attitude. Don't overreact. Like, And I think that it perfectly contrasts with this like military quarantine that we're seeing, this like tension that we're seeing. And um, I just think that that contrast was really beautifully done and that dialogue was amazing. Yeah, I think the evolution of the dialogue within Wes Anderson's films has been really fascinating. I wish I could have watched every single one of his in the lead up to Asteroid City, but I just didn't have the time. I was wondering, Jonathan, do you have any thoughts on the evolution of his dialogue specifically? Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) Oh, that could be a whole podcast. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's interesting. You know, some of it has always been there. You go back even to the Bottle Rocket short film, there is just a certain... You know, I think mannered is often a word that is used in a Mm. negative sense. I'm not using it in a negative sense. But there is this, you know, sort of novelistic speech pattern he gives them. Uh, Definitely, I do think after – it's another thing that I think has turned after Fantastic Mr. Fox is his willingness to just give people reams of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like really lay it out there. And, and I even, I found this quote when we talked about Grand Budapest of one of the reasons he cast Ray Fine as Gustav M. Gustav is because Ray Fine is a Shakespearean who won't mm-hmm. blink if you give him pages of dialogue. He'll memorize it. And that's, he does that. A lot of movie actors can't do that. It's just not the skill set. Um, and M. Gustav 
talks nonstop in that movie. And Asteroid City definitely has that quality too. It's, it's a little like Robert Altman if everyone stopped to wait for each other to finish instead of talking <laughs> over each other, right? But it's a lot of dialogue. And, and yeah, I do love the, the way you can always kind of see it written down. I remember, I think one of my first reactions after seeing the French dispatch, which I really loved was, Oh, I want to get the script for that movie. I just want to read it. I, it's, it's as good as it is to watch. I want to study the language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that quality of it has become a really a beautiful thing. Uh, that said, my favorite joke in this entire movie is nonverbal, and it's the reveal of Jeff Goldblum as the alien. Oh, uh, my God, yes. <laughs> which is so good. I mean, obviously, the alien is a stop-motion puppet, but when we see the the mm-hmm. suit, and it's like, oh, that's who's in the alien outfit, is a perfect use of your Jeff Goldblum. Just yes. A+. Plus. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more. That <laughs> moment was delightful. <laughs> yeah. Remy, did you have a favorite joke or hilarious moment in the film? You know, I found myself laughing at different points uh, the second time around. Some things I kind of laughed out of surprise in the first round. Mm. So it was a really small moment. But when Tom Hanks finally shows up to Asteroid City and sees his granddaughters, I guess for the first time in a while, and they all just kind of look at him and one of them says, who's this old man? (laughs) I thought it was hysterical. I thought the daughters were hysterical throughout. Mm -hmm. And in my second watch, the moment after the first encounter happens in the asteroid crater Mm -hmm. and everyone just witnessed the alien come down and go away and they all kind of look at each other and no one has spoken yet and Augie turns to Woodrow I think and he says the alien stole our asteroid (laughs) and that's the first line that hit me is extremely funny the second time around for some reason so yeah I had several laughs and they were mostly dialogue driven but God, the Jeff Goldblum moment was so perfect. I loved it too, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. Just because, and he's one of those people who's become part of like the rotating cast. Yes. He's in all yeah. of oh, these. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of wondering, are we going to see him? And we do. And it's in such a good use of like, okay, let's get Jeff in yeah. here for one hour and we'll do a perfect joke with him. Yeah. Which is and great. it's like, if any person on earth is secretly an alien it is almost certainly (laughs) jeff goldblum so they selected the most perfect role yep absolutely (laughs) i uh i i'm i'm learning here reading the wikipedia page that apparently the motel manager character which is steve carell yeah uh also a first timer wes anderson person that was for bill murray Um, really yeah it was written for bill murray he was cast and then he had to drop out because he got covid so he couldn't come to Mm. set Uh. Um, so it went to Steve Carell. That part makes total sense for me as a Bill Murray part. Um, and I, a little bit of me is like, oh, I kind of wish it could have been. Uh, but Steve Carell does great. And I do like mm-hmm. the idea, the increasingly surreal vending machines <laughs> yes. all the way down to the real estate is uh-huh. such a, it's such a Wes Anderson gag. It's so weird and based on production design and all these things, but it's so funny. And I like, this is a very like toned down, dry Steve Carell. And I thought it was very good. Yeah, he was amazing. I liked I liked him a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Kat, you said that this might be competing for your favorite Wes Anderson film now. Is that mm-hmm. what you said? Yeah, yeah, that's what I think. So I I wasn't sure. It was my second favorite after my first watch. And then after the, my second watch, 
I think it's tied with the Royal Tenenbaums for me because that was just a very emotionally resonant film for me. I um, just felt like it just hit me in all of the right spots. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> um, and seeing it in the film scene 101, that was my first time ever viewing it. And seeing it on the big screen for the first time was like really astonishing. So I've been wanting to do a second watch of that for a couple weeks now. And I think I'm, uh, I think I have a second watch of that planned with some friends soon, um, who have never seen it. But yeah, that's definitely my top two right now. That's so exciting. I believe at the moment I would put Asteroid City in my top three with Tenenbaums and Rushmore. I don't know if anyone will ever dethrone Rushmore for me. (laughs) It's also a very special film for me, Jonathan. And I'm I'm a (laughs) diehard Jason Schwartzman fan. So this one was, um, it had potential to, to be up there since he's essentially the star, I would say, again. But yeah, it's definitely top three for me. Do you have any thoughts so far, Jonathan? Or is it too early to call with um, just seeing it once so far? Yeah, I don't know. I there He's a director for me who's like very consistent. I really do love most of them on a pretty even keel. And so right. I don't know where I would place it. I think the ones I... I tend to gravitate towards as my favorite. Rushmore is one of them. <laughs> and just, again, it's like, I think that movie's amazing in a million ways, but there is also a resonance to me personally of there's a lot of that character who I see it myself in. And then I think Rushmore has, in contention for my favorite movie ending of all time, the, mm-hmm. the final scene of the, the play and then the dance. And Jason Schwartzman has the line about, at least nobody got hurt. And she looks at him and says, well, you got hurt. And he says, eh, not that bad. And then we go into the the song, uh, Ooh La La, and it's just perfect. Uh, but the one that like grabbed me as a kid and I still come back to and I love is the Darjeeling Limited, which was in that period where Wes was more critically mixed. Like people didn't love that one or Life Aquatic, but I really loved it. I saw it in theaters. I got the DVD when it came out. I vividly remember like watching it on like my laptop when my family wouldn't watch it with me because <laughs> they didn't <laughs> like that movie. So I just go in my room and watch it. Um, and with Hotel Chevalier, the, the short uh, that is attached to that one. I've always loved that. I think Darjeeling Limited has maybe my favorite Wes Anderson scene, which is the... Um, I think it's 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 a Rolling Stones song. I think it's playing with fire where it's uh, going through all of the like characters in the world of the movie as if they're all on a train together. And it's these whip pans through all the doors of the train uh, is like, I think, visually like a little thesis statement of his career and the way people are connected. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. But then in the film scene 101 series, the one that hit me was Moonrise Kingdom. Really? I think it's just a absolute masterpiece i don't think it hit me as hard when it came out and i i wrote very positively of it in 2012 but it's one of those movies about kids that i think the older you get you realize how wise it is um and i just think that one is like there's a rawness to that i think there's a frankness about kids and the way they feel things that i just there's very few movies i could put on the same plane in what it's doing um, so those are all ones, but, but then I think I'm like, ah, but then I want to talk about Grand Budapest. I want to talk about Royal Tenenbaums, uh, and Bottle Rocket is probably underrated. And yeah, the, the only one I've never connected with is Isle of Dogs, mm. which is weird because I love animation. I love dogs. Mine's right behind <laughs> me. 
and I love Japan because I studied Japan. There was just something about that movie that didn't quite land with me, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'd be happy to revisit it at some point and rethink that. Um, mm-hmm. But then there's Fantastic Mr. Fox. And that one's perfect. <laughs> and oh, that's got Cousin Christopherson, who's one of my favorite characters. <laughs> anyway, I could go on and on, and I'm sorry to uh, drone no. on about it. <laughs> no, I love it. No, it's just I wish we could talk forever about it because – when you were talking about Moonrise Kingdom, I also had a similar experience where I wasn't, you know, in love with it the first time I saw it. That might have been the first one I ever saw in theaters, actually. And I just revisited it a couple weeks ago. And I was really struck with a couple of the characters, uh, Bruce Willis's character and Edward Norton's character, because of their tenderness and respect for the emotion, the emotional life of children, essentially. Mm. And that's something that is often really lacking in the paternal characters in West films. There's a lot of times the dads are kind of villain-esque, a la Gene Hackman, or <laughs> detached and flawed, a la Augie Steenbeck. So seeing the, the way Bruce Willis's character really stands up for the kids in, in Moonrise Kingdom was really touching to me. And I, if anyone out there has written a thesis about paternal uh, characters in West films, I would love to read it. Well, that actually, I have two reactions to that. One, you and I think exactly the same way because I did slides on both of those actors when we talked about Moonrise Kingdom. No. I was like, we need, I've always, Bruce Willis and Edward Norton, it's like my favorite performance of either of them is in that movie. Oh, it's heartbreakingly Um, good. It's, yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're right on the money, I think, about that. That is a really interesting thematic connection. But the thing I'm thinking is they're not actually biologically parents in that movie. No. They mm-hmm. are both surrogates. Bruce Willis kind of stumbles into this role of a father and Edward Norton is a scoutmaster. He's kind of like a big grown up child mm-hmm. who kind of comes into this role of responsibility. But absolutely. That's the Edward Norton thing. I've, he was always such, I, f- I felt like a kind of severe actor and put into very hard parts. And then Wes was like, I'm going to make you the most gentle man in every one of my movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's beautiful. Uh, I even, I was going through my Grand Budapest Hotel Criterion set, which has all these like fold outs and things. And I was reading, you know, there's all those newspaper clippings in the movie and they're all written out. And his character in Grand Budapest, he's like the cop who's like the good one. You learn even is like the person who like ran the government in exile, resisting the Nazis and all this. So that's the kind of person he always puts Edward Norton in. And I love that. Even in this, he's the, he's the very sensitive writer mm-hmm. who dies. Um, <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I wish we could talk about all of his films now. Yes. French Dispatch 2. I always have to put a shout out for that one because I feel Mm -hmm. like it's under discussed and I was obsessed with that movie. I think it's beautiful and brilliant and I I love the structuring of it. But yeah, now I think I've mentioned every one of them. So sorry. (laughs) No, this is why we have you on here. You're our expert. Absolutely. Do you have any closing thoughts you didn't get to in terms of Asteroid City? Um, one other thing. You guys mentioned, I think, at one point, the the little girls, the daughters, mm-hmm. and they're great. Uh, but then also the like teenage characters I love yeah. here. 
And uh, Sophia Lillis, I think I knew she's in the It movies. She was in Dungeons right. and Dragons. She's great. But the other kids, like, they don't have pages on Wikipedia, for instance. So I don't mm-hmm. know if they've been in other things. Jake Ryan was Woodrow. Um, and, and there were some other, yeah, Grace Edwards was Dina Campbell, but they're all great. Like Wes Anderson mm-hmm. has turned out to be one of the great directors of kids and young adults. And I guess that's been true since Schwartzman in Rushmore, but it's just been more and more true. And I really love how much he leans on young actors and gives them space to be funny and mm-hmm. natural. And there's something he captures about the awkwardness of being a kid, but in a way that's charming that I think is very unique. And right. I think Asteroid City has some of the best material in that vein. I also think one thing I realized when I was thinking about why I liked the daughter characters, the daughters characters so much, is because they have such a strong conviction in their interests and their worldview. And I think that is also a through line of what makes Wes's child characters so good. I mean, um, Max Fisher I mean, he's really a person of conviction, and that's why he's so animated in all all of the things he's doing. And the kids in Moonrise Kingdom, if they have one conviction, it's that they want to be together. And he gives these kids emotional wherewithal and respect for their uh, inner lives and conveys those inner lives through these convictions. And I think that's part of like building respect for those younger characters. So I know I completely agree that he, he's one of the best uh, filmmakers out there in terms of the younger characters having meteor roles and meaningful contributions to his films. Yeah. Even, and even I've seen, you know, some of them grow up with him, like Jason Schwartzman. We've got Tony Revolori here who was that kind of person in Grand Budapest and here mm-hmm. is the aide-de-camp mm-hmm. to the Jeffrey Wright character. Yeah. Um, he has a standout moment in this movie, too. So it's it really is crazy when you look at the cast. It's ludicrously big. And I think everybody has at least a moment where you're like, this is why they did it. And Absolutely. that's pretty remarkable for a cast this big. Mm-hmm. Kat, do you have any anything else you wanted to touch on? No, I think that we covered it all. Like, I was just truly thrilled to... Like, even as we're, like, talking about our favorite moments, I've got this big smile on my face, and I'm like, this movie is filled with so much joy for me, and uh, it's just, I could just watch it over and over again. I loved (laughs) it so much. Um, I definitely recommend it to anyone. I mean, when you listen to people talk about it, they'll say, like, it's a film within a film within a TV show, and that can sound really complex, but, and it is, it is on your first watch at least, but if you just kind of like go with the flow, you're going to get a lot out of it. It's going to be an enjoyable experience. Every theater or like every showing I saw, there were laughs from everyone in the audience. It just seemed like a movie that anyone can enjoy and it's family friendly. It's just, it's a lovely film. So I can't recommend it enough. Absolutely. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much for visiting us on the Friend Diagram podcast today. It's been an excellent discussion with you. Where can we read or hear more from you? 
Yeah, well, thank you for having me. This was an absolute delight uh, because on on my podcast, we don't quite get around to the Wes Andersons of the world. Um, but yeah, I host two podcasts. I host the Weekly Stuff podcast with my buddy, Sean Chapman, and we talk about movies and video games and all sorts of stuff. That's just weeklystuffpodcast.com. That airs Monday nights, most weeks of the year. We have another podcast that is just about anime. Um, very different than Wes Anderson, I know, but um, I'll just mention it because it's premiering in the next couple days. Our, our third season of that show, it's called Japanimation Station, is premiering July 4th, and it's a season that's all about a character named Lupin the Third, who's a famous anime character, and that's going to run eight episodes through the next couple months. That's just japanimationstation.com. And uh, my writing, uh, I wrote about Asteroid City. I did a bunch of Indiana Jones pieces this last week, is at... Uh, you can just go to jonathanlack.com and it'll redirect you there or weeklystuff.substack.com. And it's a Substack newsletter uh, that also has archives going back about 10 years of stuff from other sites I've written for. Um, and yeah, doing more and more movie reviewing again, which has been a, a nice exercise as well, because I, I love writing about this stuff too. So Absolutely. Well, thank you again. And we'll have all of this linked in the show notes as well. And we'll also specifically link to Jonathan's wonderful review on Asteroid City that he wrote up after his viewing. And um, definitely make sure to check all of those out. Thank you so Thank much you for so joining much. us. Thank you so much. I'm flattered. This was, this was <laughs> so much fun. I love talking about this stuff. This is great. Um, it was wonderful absolutely. to have you. So fun. Yeah. Yeah, and thank you for being open to doing it. When I suggested it to Kat, I was like, you know, because we kept talking about this <laughs> the series of films, and I was like, we should invite him on the podcast, like thinking like, this guy, he doesn't have the time for this. He's like this big fancy Wes expert. And then when you agreed to it, I was like, this is so exciting. This is yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm flattered. that I'm not that fancy, but I am a big Wes Anderson fan. So this is great. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Friend Diagram. Thank you to Tyler Seek for the creation of our intro and outro music. Did you take any of our recommendations? Have any thoughts on the show? Let us know at frienddiagrampod at gmail.com and we might read your email on a future episode. If you can, please take a moment to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice. And we'll see you back here, same place, next week. Bye for now.